Good morning, SunWest. Who's ready for an apocalypse this morning? Anybody? Yeah, we, uh, we, the apocalypse we are learning is uh, simp- simply means to unveil or to look behind the curtain to see what's really happening. Uh, and as we look at the apocalypse of Jesus in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see that the apocalypse is actually good news. We use the word apocalypse to describe bad news and destructive things that are happening um, but apocalypse uh, it doesn't is actually a neutral term. It's not saying that it's bad or good. It's just saying we're going to show you something that you can't see um, obviously. And so as we pull back the curtain, as as God takes John and gives him this vision of what's actually happening on behind the scenes in the first century, what John sees is a good news apocalypse. Yes, there's hard things. There's harsh realities. Uh, Jesus is showing John. Uh, you know, in, in light of all the devastation and the hardship and the suffering that's happened in the world that he's part of, uh, he's allowing John to see what's actually happening, but then he pulls him even deeper into the apocalypse to see that God is still in control, that God has a plan, and that his plan isn't finished. So even though this world looks like it's overwhelming and that uh, it, we're on the trajectory towards this destructive end, uh, the apocalypse is that God is actually rewriting the story, and it has uh, a deeper and better ending than we would have thought. John uh, is is seeing this vision on the island of Patmos. And again, he's on the island of Patmos uh, because he's there as a prisoner. And he's there as a prisoner because he believed that Jesus Christ uh, was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah. And he believes that in an empire that was demanding uh, that he worship Caesar uh, among other gods. And John was unwilling to do that. He said, there's only one God. Uh, and that God has been fully revealed in Jesus. And I bow my knee and I worship only him. Because of that, John is on the island of Patmos, uh, and John was in first and foremost a pastor. And so John has a heart for the people of God that is struggling in the empire of Rome to figure out what does it mean to, to follow the emperor Jesus and not the emperor Caesar. And so he's writing to his churches, he's, he's encouraging them with this apocalypse uh, that Jesus has given him so that they might remain faithful and that they might be bold even in the midst of what's happening in the first century. Different churches were uh, responding in different ways. Some were tempted to, to compromise uh, and try and worship uh, the emperor and Jesus. Uh, some were trying to assimilate and take on the culture of that time uh, and align with the political powers at the time. Uh, some were, uh, you know, buckling down and just um, being sold out for Jesus. And because of that, they found themselves in oppression uh, and some of them were giving their lives uh, for Jesus. So John is writing to all of these churches uh, who are responding in different ways. This is around 96 AD at the end of the first century. Uh, John is in his mid-80s at this point, uh, and he's given this apocalypse by Jesus, this vision to encourage the churches. Uh, and so as we've been going through, uh, we've been recognizing that that John is not just showing them something about the future, although there are future elements in the, this apocalypse, but primarily John is showing them something about the present. So they might not be fooled, that they might not be overwhelmed in the present because uh, there is good news actually behind what is happening behind the curtain. Uh, and so we are uh, over halfway through the book of Revelation now, uh, and we're entering into chapter 13. Uh, and I'm going to invite you to stand, if you are able with me, as I read uh, the text of Revelation chapter 13. It says, Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns, with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. 
I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast? They exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months, and he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose name were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Then I saw another beast come out of the earth, and he had two horns like those of a lamb. But he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on their forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without the mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So this, many scholars would say, is the e- one of the easiest texts in all of Revelation to understand. Um. And, uh, you know, finally we get to some of the themes that's, that many of you have been waiting that we get to when we look at the beast, when we look at the number 666. And, um, and I think uh, by this point, as we have learned to read the book of Revelation in its context, in the way that it was written, in its apocalyptic literature form, uh, which is highly symbolic, which is about revealing what's happening in the present, not as much about what's, predict- about what's coming down in the future. Uh, and we recognize that the themes that John is using are themes from the Old Testament, themes from other points in Scripture. The numbers that John is using are, are symbolic in ways of saying the same message. And as we go around the circle of these themes, uh, we recognize that there's nothing new in Revelation that we actually haven't already read, that many of the themes that were being uh, for God's people just start coming up over and over and over again. And I hope hope you start to feel that as we go through it, that we come back to the same place over and over again, the same themes over and over again, that the Lamb is on the throne, that Jesus is in control, that we are living between his first and second coming. And in this time in between, it's a time of pressure uh, that the church, the people of God are under, but we must remain faithful and endure during this time uh, because Jesus is coming back and he's rewriting history uh, even when we feel like there's a lack of hope today. And so as we've moved through the text and we've learned how to read it, uh, I trust that uh, now that we get to some of these themes, we won't be as surprised as we might have been if we were to 
uh, tackle Revelation 13 right at the start. So let me start with the number 666 because uh, mostly I don't want this to be a distraction and I, I don't want to, even though it's at the end of the text, I don't want to end on it um, because I think it's going to take away from the main theme uh, that is happening. And there's been a lot of ink that's been spilt on the number uh, 666. Uh, and if you've grown up in church culture uh, and you've been around for some time, uh, you've probably heard lots of different references to 666 and who is it referring to? Uh, and, you know, is this possibly, uh, does this guy, you know, is this the Antichrist? Is he have the number 666? And uh, what's the mark of the beast? Uh, and all these other things that we're going to talk about the mark of the beast a little bit later. But let's just talk about the number 666 from the get-go. And a lot has been written about this number and is clearly a symbol, as all numbers are in the book of Revelation. We've seen that over and over again, that these numbers are symbolic. And many have tried to identify the symbol as some specific historical person. Uh, and different scholars are actually divided on this part. But uh, there's something called gematria, which, is the, uh, which was the practice of uh, spelling names with numbers. So if we were to do that in the English language, you know, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three. Um, and if I were to spell my name Matt, um, and I took the uh, the proper numbers for those letters and added them together, that total would be, uh, you know, representative of my name. And so that's called gematria. And they did that in Hebrew culture and Greek culture. And they would, they would have fun with that. And they put numbers together that represented people's names. Uh, so some people have tried to figure out who the historical figure is using the, uh, gematria, and it is somewhat convincing. Uh, and there, uh, there's a lot of scholars that have that are looking at the Revelation the way that we've been looking at it, and would come to the conclusion that six 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 is in reference to Nero, to Nero Caesar. If you take uh, the name Nero Caesar uh, in Hebrew and do gematria, you end up with six six six. Um, and what's interesting is there's actually two ways that you can write Nero Caesar, one with the N on the end, Neron Caesar or Nero Caesar. If you write Nero Caesar, it ends up in 666. If you, or Neron Caesar ends up in 666. If you write Nero Caesar, it ends up in 616. And what's fascinating, if you go back to the early manuscripts uh, of Revelation when they were copying multiple, multiple manuscripts, some manuscripts have 666 and some manuscripts have 616. So whether or not this is the right way to understand 666, it's clear to me at least that uh, many of the people that were copying the early manuscripts believed that this was referring to Nero uh, in some way. Um, you could also, if you were to do the gematria with the word beast in uh, Greek, it's theron. It also comes out to 666 if you use the Greek language uh, to write out the word beast. Um, and so... There's lots of different names and ways that you can kind of play this game. Did, do you know who else, which other name comes out with 666? Again, 666 is representing people that we put our hope in, a person that we put our hope in that will disappoint us in the end. Uh, and and I, I did this gematria with, with some other names, and what other name comes out with 666 is Connor McDavid. Um, we, we just put our hope in somebody, and they never live up to the expectations. Time will tell, I guess, if my interpretation is true. So you can play the gematria game, um, and I actually find it somewhat convincing given the manuscripts being 666 and 616. Um, and uh, many scholars would say, you know, that's what it's referring to. Uh, but most scholars who understand 
apocalyptic literature would say at the very minimum, and this we can probably agree on that 666 is a symbol of the nature of the earth beast. And we're going to talk about the earth beast a little bit later, but six is one less than seven. And seven is the number of completeness, fullness. And so when, when John refers to the seven spirits, he's not talking about seven actual spirits. He's talking about the completeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this is the way that John uses seven throughout uh, Revelation. Six is the nature of the beast, and six is one less than perfection. Six is also known as the, the number of humanity. And interesting enough, if you go to the text in Revelation 13, it says this is the number of a man. Uh, there's no definite article on the Greek word man or anthropos. So a definite article is how we would uh, identify a specific person if it's re- referring to a specific person. In the original language or in the Greek language, if I were to say Matt uh, and we're talking about myself, we would have a definite article before a name, which would be the Matt. So a Matt, a specific Matt talking about me. Uh, there's actually no definite article in the original text. And so you could read it. The number is the number of man. It's the number of humanity. It's the number of less than divine. Uh, and so six is the nature of the beast, and it's one less than perfection. It's less than divine. Six, six, you know, as you can see, the point, the the more sixes you add, the, the point is being made greater. It's regularly, it's always one less than per, uh, perfection. Six, 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 every single time through all of history is one less than perfection. It's less than complete. It's less than divine. It doesn't fulfill the promises. It's not the number of God. It's the number of humanity. Um, and so that way of approaching the number 666, regardless if you follow the, the, the idea of gematria or not, uh, the main message is the same. That 666 represents a person that people were putting their hope, their faith, their trust into, uh, but that person is not divine uh, and it is not God, and we are, uh, he will not deliver on the hope and the promises that we're putting onto them. And so the best the beast can do that is six. Uh, this is actually supported as we look at the, the text on the whole, uh, as we look at the three characters in Revelation 13, um, we see that we have the, the dragon and then we have the two beasts, the, the beasts of the earth and the beasts of the sea, and, and they form what is a counterfeit trinity. Uh, and in some ways, they're trying to mimic God. They're trying to appear divine. They're trying to appear perfect and full uh, and almighty, uh, but they don't, uh, they can't fulfill on that promise. We're going to talk about that in a second. Before we get further into chapter 13, just to review chapter 12 and chapter 12, which is the theological center of the book. We met three characters, the dragon, the child, the woman. The dragon is the archenemy of God. It's Satan, uh, the devil, the accuser, the deceiver, the murderer. We talked about that last week, how the dragon does that. Um, and the dragon, wa- is he hates Jesus and he wanted to kill Jesus. And, and it, the, Revelation 12 retells the Christmas story of how the dragon tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And we see that in the Christmas story when Herod tried to kill Jesus uh, he was taking on the nature of the dragon. He was taking on the agenda of the dragon and trying to do what the dragon wanted him to do. And that's how the dragon operates in the world. He deceives, he accuses people and he deceives people and gets people to partner with him in bringing destruction to what God wants to do in the world. And so the, the child is taken away and the dragon can't kill the child. And so the dragon goes after the woman uh, and the woman is put into the wilderness in a place of protection. Uh, but the text says that the dragon goes after her offspring. Uh, after the people of God, after the church. Um, And so this is the story that we see in Revelation 12. The dragon is furious. 
uh, and we recognize that the dragon can't touch Jesus. The dragon hates Jesus, and so the best that he can do is to attack and harm those whom Jesus loves. And this is what we see played out through the course of history, that Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, is working against Jesus, trying to hurt Jesus by attacking those whom he loves, and he's working against the church. But the dragon doesn't come at the church directly. And this is the point of Revelation 13 that we need to understand. The dragon doesn't show up, and as I said last week, we don't look around and actually see a dragon, a red dragon, causing destruction, accusing, deceiving, murdering. We, we don't see that literally with our eyes. It's, uh, but what we do see is that the dragon uses forces, human forces, to do his work in the world. And these are referred to as the beast of the sea, the first beast, and the second beast, the beast of the earth. So the dragon doesn't work directly. He actually manipulates. He's like a, he's the master of puppets. He is, he's using the puppets of the beast one and the beast two, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth to do his will, to bring destruction on the earth, to work against God and what God is trying to do in the world through his people uh, to bring shalom to the world, to bring heaven to earth. Uh, and that's where we will get to at the end of the book of Revelation. So the people of God are under this pressure from this unholy trinity. And the text actually clearly set this up as a trinity that is trying to mimic uh, the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in Revelation 12, we see that the dragon mim- mimics the same description as God in Revelation 4. We see in Revelation 13, the beast of the sea mimics the same uh, characteristics as the lamb in Revelation 5. We see in Revelation 13, that the beast of the earth mimics the work of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Revelation 11. And so these three entities are literally trying to mimic and appear divine to try and get worship from the people on earth. And we're under pressure, usually a very subtle pressure by the dragon, but he is more obviously working through these two forces, the beast one, the beast two, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth. And so what are these two beasts representing? The sea beast... uh, represents dragon-manipulated political power. And the earth beast represents dragon-manipulated religious power. So the sea beast represents dragon-manipulated political power. The earth beast represents dragon-manipulated religious power. And how do we know this? Um, Well, there's lots of stuff in the text that tells us this, but we know that uh, in the book of Job, we read about two great beasts, Leviathan in Job 41, and behemoth, the earth monster, in Job 40. The same type of descriptions we see in Revelation. Again, John is using imagery from other places in Scripture, um, helping us to see these two monsters that we see throughout the Old Testament. And we regularly see that these two monsters represent uh, evil forces that are trying to undo the shalom work of God in the world. And they also regularly represent evil empires that are oppressing God's people throughout uh, the Old Test- or throughout the Scriptures. Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we, we also know that the beast being referred to here, especially beast number one, we read about in the book of Daniel. Uh, we read about a dream that the prophet had in the first year of reign of uh, King Belshazzar. And Daniel sees four great beasts coming out from the sea. The same language that John uses in Revelation chapter 13. The first beast, says Daniel, was like a lion. The second beast, like a bear. The third beast was like a leopard. And the fourth beast, uh, he was unable to describe. So as the dream unfolds, it becomes clear that the beasts that are being referred to in Daniel 7 are human kingdoms and empires 
that are rejecting the claim of the living God, each seeking to live independently of God to be their own God. Uh, And so John describes the beast from the sea in Revelation 13 using the imagery from Daniel 7. Uh, And we can read it here in in verse 2. It says, This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. So is John saying that this, this is the fourth beast that Daniel couldn't describe in Daniel 7? Or is John saying, which I believe this is what he's saying, is that the beast from the sea is all four beasts wrapped up into one. That each of the four beasts that Daniel saw, which were particular kingdoms, were only manifestations of this beast. The beast that comes from the sea manifested itself in each of the four and by implication in every other kingdom since them that has turned their backs on the God um, who is the center of the universe. The beast from the sea is human kingdoms in any era that leave the living God out of the center of their lives. And John's day, when John was writing this, was Rome. Um, but historically, it's been Assyria, Persia, Babylon, Egypt. As we, as we read the story of God, this beast showed up in many forms throughout the story of God, empire after empire, trying to squash the people of God. And after Rome, after the first century, it's been many other human empires since then. Revelation 13 tells us how the beast becomes beastie. The beastiness of these empires happens when they are actually seeking to be worshipped. They are seeking to be divine. And political powers don't typically set out to be beastie. They set out to be their own master, to be in control, to have power, to have dominion. But over time, as they become the center of their world, they start to require and expect that people would bend their knee to them. When political powers set out to be their own gods, to demand allegiance and worship and to be the discerners and definers of what is true, they become beastie. They become In the process of becoming divine, they actually become demonic. And so not every earthly empire is beastie in this way, but those empires throughout history that have sought to define truth, that have sought to control people, that have sought complete allegiance and dominance and worship are in and of themselves representing the beast of the sea. Or I should say the beast of the sea is representing them. And so Rome didn't set out this way. It didn't set out to be God. It didn't set out to, to, to be the beast in this kind of way. Uh, but it happened over time, first creating God in its own image, and then over time requiring people to worship that image. And it's actually all about worship. This is how an empire becomes beastie. In, in Revelation 13, we see four references in verse 4 twice, and then in verse 8 and verse 15, this uh, requirement for people to worship the beast. John is telling us that the power is no longer under God, but they have actually tried to play the role of God themselves, requiring people to pay allegiance and to worship the beast. And this happens because the human heart is actually an idol factory. We were created to worship. We can't not worship. Every human being chooses to give their allegiance, their heart to something. And so as people are looking to give their allegiance, their loyalty, their heart to something, the empires throughout history have actually come into that void and say, you can put your hope into us. You can put your trust into us. You can give your allegiance 
to us and the human heart because it's an idol factory that is always looking for hope, always looking to give its heart towards something, uh, readily gives its heart to the empire uh, when it's the best story that it can choose from. And as the people look around Rome, they say, this is the best story that we've seen. This is the best story that we can come up with. And so we are going to give our allegiance to this. We were made to worship and every human being is a, is a worshiper and worship we must do, but what we worship, we actually get to choose. And this is what Revelation 13 is helping us to see is that the beast is requiring worship and the people of God are called to worship God and God alone. And so who will they worship? And so as you go through the history of Rome, we can see how this ha happened. Uh, the tendency in Rome uh, before the first uh, millennium was uh, to actually get allegiance from the people to create a unified empire. Uh, and over time, the people began to worship the Caesar. Divine honors in the, uh, Caesar Augustus actually heaped divine honors on Julius Caesar. And this was kind of the beginning of em emperor worship. Uh, and throughout the reign of Caesar Augustus, uh, emperor worship went on and grew to 34 different cities uh, by 14 AD that required emperor worship. And then from AD to 37, Tiberius continued this trend, allowing temples in his honor to be built in the province of Asia for people to worship him. From AD 37 to 41, Caligula kept this going and insisted that he be acknowledged among the gods as divine. From AD 41 to 54, Claudius actually took a more moderate stance. He wasn't pushing emperor worship. He, he didn't stop it, but he didn't promote it, and he allowed it to happen. Um, and, uh, and this took the pressure off the people of God for a season. Uh, but then when it came to Nero... It really ramped up from 8054 to 68. Nero took things to the extreme. Uh, he was an extreme personality. He murdered his stepbrother. He murdered his wife. He murdered his own mother. Uh, and he murdered his two political advisors. And he demanded from every single person in his life complete allegiance and worship. And then from 80, 81 to 96, the mission went all the way and demanded that the whole world, the whole empire, worship him as Lord and God. He even changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. Sounds like a Star Wars theme. Um, so the, the beast from the sea is dragon-manipulated political power used by the dragon to pressure disciples of Jesus. Wow. Uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, the one true emperor, to compromise their loyalty to him. John is telling his fellow disciples that the state has actually become the servant of Satan the servant of the dragon, that they've, they're actually helping the dragon accomplish his purposes. And so the question, if you're familiar with the New Testament, would be, well, how does this square with Romans 13? Doesn't Paul tell us in Romans 13 that the state is the servant of God and that we should honor the state and be obedient to the state? Um, and twice in, Revelation, or in Romans 13, uh, Paul refers to the state or the government as ministers of God. Is this contradicting what John is saying here in Revelation 13? Uh, and the answer is no. And again, the answer comes out of context. When Paul was writing Revel Romans 13, when Paul's writing Romans 13, it was during the reign of Claudius. During the administration of Claudius, who played down emperor worship and allegiance, who took the pressure off the people of God, and John writes under the, admission, uh, under the administration of Domitian who demanded worship. And if you didn't worship him, there'd be consequences. And so the context of which each of these letters is written is important. 
In just a few decades from Romans 13 to Revelation 13, we see that the state had moved from actually being uh, in a place where where Paul was able to write and say, uh, just give your, uh, you know, honor your government. They're there as ministers of God to moving to a place in Revelation 13 of saying the government, the empire is now working on behalf of the dragon and we must resist it. There's a shift in the culture. It also says this of the beast. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. John sees one of the heads of the beast suffer this mortal wound, and it refers to this in Revelation 13, if, if you notice that when we read it. And this is a clear metaphor and act of counterfeit. The beast is trying to Im- imitate Jesus, who is also requiring the allegiance and the worship of people. The same language is used of Jesus earlier in the book. If we can see this in Revelation 5, 6, it says, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. In 13:3, I saw one of his, the beast's heads, as if it had been slain. 5 verse 9, tribe and tongue. It, um, the lamb purchases men and women from every tribe and tongue uh, and people and nation. In Revelation 13, 7, the beast seeks to exercise authority over men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Chapter 5, verse 13, the whole universe worships the land. Chapter 13, verse 4, the whole earth worships the dragon and the beast. And so there's uh, the, the beast of the sea is trying to imitate Jesus and is trying to get allegiance and worship and loyalty from people working on behalf of the dragon, the puppet master. We also know that Nero uh, committed suicide at the age of 32. So there might be a secondary imagery thing going on here or a uh, metaphor. Uh, Nero, when he committed suicide, uh, there was a rumor that went on that he had come back to life, uh, not dissimilar to like Elvis rumors or something from our time. Uh, he's still alive. Uh, so there, there's, there's probably some cultural references in there too. Um, so that's the beast number one, the beast from the sea. The be- beast number two, the beast of the earth. It too uses power to mimic and deceive people through signs and wonders. It says this, he did astounding miracles, even making the uh, fire flashed down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. So astounding miracles, literally in the original text, great signs, and then fire, and then the reference of fire from heaven. Great signs and fire from heaven. These are references that mimic Moses, great signs, and Elijah, fire from heaven. We've already seen references in Revelation a couple of times to Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah uh, representing who? The people of God, the prophetic people of God who are called to give testimony to God. And so beast number two, this earth beast, uh, in the same way that the church was intended to be prophetic witness to Jesus the Lamb, the earth beast is this witness that is calling people to worship the earth beast, or the sea beast, sorry. The earth beast is calling people to worship the sea beast. This is why the earth beast exists. So he's, he's getting people to worship the sea beast and the role of this beast is to do whatever it takes for people to put their trust in political power, to put their hope into political power that has moved out from under the authority of God. Uh, now note verse 15. It says, He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it may die. This, the second beast, the beast of the earth, literally... It says, gives life or breathes, gives breath to the first beast. The earth beast provides the spirit, the life force, the, uh, the energy, the, 
the, the motivation for people to put their trust in the beast. And just as the lamb marks his people, so the earth beast marks his people. Just as the lamb puts a seal on his followers, so the earth, the earth beast puts a seal on his followers and it makes it difficult for them to do business, to buy and sell, is what the text says. Unless people have this mark on their head and on their right hand, uh, they are going to suffer. And so is it talking about a literal mark on their forehead or a mark on their hand? Uh, the imagery is simply telling us uh, that the beast wants to so influence the marketplace that if you don't worship the sea beast, that there's going to be consequences in your life. It says he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on their forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. And so we've all heard references to the mark of the beast, maybe. Uh, And if you haven't, I'm so happy for you. Um, So is it talking about a literal mark on the forehead, a literal mark on the right hand? Is it talking about... uh, you know, maybe in in that current time, slaves being branded in some way with the mark of Rome, or is it talking about the the image of the emperor on the coins that were used in the marketplace, um, or is it you know talking about uh, you know something more literal today? Is it talking about credit cards? You know, you hear people talk about chips being uh, put in people's heads or new technology. Is it talking about iPhones that people are walking around in their hands? Is it talking about vaccines that people have gotten? Did I just say that? Uh, it's, it is not literally talking about any of those things. Just in the same way. So remember, this is a parallel to the seal that Jesus puts on his people. In the same way that when you become a follower of Jesus, you do not get a literal seal on your forehead or a mark on your wrist, but the seal is representing the Holy Spirit, the character of God, the Spirit of God that has been placed into us. Uh, we, we see that the mark is even referred to as his name. In the next chapter, verse 1, in 14 verse 1, it says that Jesus, uh, it talks about um, the mark of his name in the name of his father. This is the reference in 14 verse 1. Uh, And this does not mean that the letters of Jesus literally get put on our forehead or our wrist. Instead, when they say name, it's talking about the character of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. The mark of Jesus is the character of Jesus Christ that is sealed on us, that is put in us by the Holy Spirit. And so in a parallel way, as the beast too is mimicking this, what it's saying is that the spirit of the age, the spirit of the culture, the mark of this beast is the spirit of the age where we give our total allegiance to humans, to political powers, to political systems, the hope of the world we put into humanity, into 666, one less than divine. It's not a tattoo. It's not a microchip. It's not an iPhone. It's not a vaccine. It's none of those things. The character of the beast is what is embedded under the skin. This is what it's talking about. The character and the spirit of the beast being embedded under the skin in the human soul that people would give their allegiance their entire person to put their hope in humans and human systems. Just as the whole, just as the presence of the Holy Spirit makes himself known through Jesus' disciples, so the presence of the beast makes himself known through its disciples. And in fact, there's probably even a reference here. I don't want to go too far down this, this rabbit trail, but the, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, 8, it's talking about the law of God. Um, and it tells 
uh, how to disciple the, the Israelites, how to disciple their people. Uh, and he said, and it says in Deuteronomy, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commandments that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you were at home and when you were on the road, when you were going to bed and when you were gathering up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Disciple your children, this is what it's talking about, in the way of God. The beast is seeking to disciple people in the way of the empire. The beast from the earth is religious power or powers. John is telling the churches that religion can also be manipulated by the dragon. This is why later in the drama, John actually calls the beast the false prophet in chapter 16 and chapter 19 because it's testifying, it's giving a prophetic witness to the wrong person, to the wrong thing. Dragon manipulated religious power, inducing people to worship the dragon manipulated political power. Religious power that is seeking to give life, to breathe life into political power, which was exactly what was happening in the first century in the cities which John was writing this revelation to. John is writing to a church that is under pressure, that is being tempted to worship and give their allegiance to the empire. They're under pressure both from political power and from religious power. But the pressure is not actually from these powers. It's from the dragon who is using these powers for his purposes. The pressure is from the dragon working through and manipulating political and religious powers. And we can see that this is the tactic of the enemy through history. And we can see it clearly even in the life and ministry of Jesus. A fascinating text in Mark chapter 3, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot the Herodian, with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Again, remember the heart of the dragon is to kill Jesus. This is what we saw in the Christmas story in Revelation 12. And this should stun us when we read this text because the Pharisees hated the Herodians and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. And here we see them coming together in a common hatred towards Jesus, who was claiming to be Messiah. This is why Jesus was in trouble, because he was claiming to be Messiah. He was planning to forgive sins. He was claiming to do things that only God can do. And the religious leader said, blasphemy. And so they had a common enemy. They had a common agenda to get rid of Jesus. And so the Pharisees who hated the Herodians, Herodians hated the Pharisees, come together against the common enemy. And so we see the Pharisees is, represents this religious power, this religious group who was in power, who had great influence at the time. And their heart was they were wanting to stay pure. They were wanting to stay righteous. They were wanting to stay rigorous. They were wanting to stay faithful to God in their minds, but they had lost their way. They were so sure uh, that Jesus was their enemy that they were willing to do whatever it took to get rid of him. And then we see the Herodians, this political group who had organized themselves and aligned themselves with the powers of Rome, wanted to stay in power, wanted to align with power, had had an uh, invested interest uh, in making sure they could hold on to their rights and not lose their positions in that culture. And so we see religious powers joining political powers, unwittingly falling into the power of the dragon, the one who hates Jesus. We also see the same thing happening in Holy 
in Holy Week, but instead of happening privately, it takes place more publicly. The religious powers and the political powers come together again, not because they like each other, but because they both have a common enemy. They both want to deal with the Jesus problem, and Jesus is a problem to political and religious powers. Religion doesn't know what to do with Jesus. Sometimes we think that Jesus came to start a new religion. He didn't. Jesus came to end religion. Religion is about people trying to get to God. The whole gospel of Jesus Christ is that God came to us. That there was no way we could get to God. That there was no way that we could merit uh, God's favor in our lives. It's the graciousness and the mercy of God. And God came to us in the person of Jesus and and undid every religious system. Religion doesn't know what to do with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't need religion for people to come to him. That's the good news. Politics doesn't know what to do with Jesus because Jesus claims and expects that all people on heaven, or all people on earth would bow their knee uh, and confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the requirement of Jesus. So the political powers in Holy Week actually come together around this common enemy of Jesus But it's the religious powers, and this is really important for us to notice, it's the religious powers that pressure the political powers to crucify Jesus. In fact, if you read the text carefully, you realize that Pilate, representing uh, the political world, didn't want to just let things play out. He actually didn't have an agenda to crucify Jesus. But it was the religious community that was putting pressure on the political community to deal with Jesus. In fact, it was the high priest, the great high priest Caiaphas, who who yelled at Pilate that we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And so finally, in the Good Friday scene, we see that the political powers and the religious powers come together to do what the dragon couldn't do on Easter Sunday, and that was to crucify Jesus. Now we know how the story ends, whether the dragon thought when the dragon thought he won, he actually lost. But this is how the beasts work. The religious beast breathes life, gives energy to the political beast to do the will of the dragon. Caiaphas, the religious high priest, fell into the trap of thinking that Caesar was worth giving his life for that this political leader was worth giving his allegiance for. Caiaphas had some kind of invested interest in his rights and the power and his position in society to the point that he was willing to crucify the Messiah that he was actually waiting for. When the church becomes more concerned about the rights and their positions of power and influence in a culture, we begin to follow the way of the dragon instead of the way of the lamb. Let me say that again. When the church becomes more concerned about the rights and their positions of power and influence in culture, we begin to follow the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't be invested in the, in the political world at all. We should care about who is, uh, who is leading and what kind of character they have. But the difference is that when we talk about our hope, our trust, when we talk about our longing for the world to change and we start to push put that longing and that hope on a person, on a system, on a party, on a platform, we actually begin to play the game that we see in the text. We become susceptible to the way of the dragon where the church is actually positioning itself under a political party or agenda or a person 
And now we think that that person becomes the hope of the world when Jesus and Jesus alone is the only hope of the world. He's the only hope for Canada. He's the only hope for America. He's the only hope for the world. He's the only emperor. He's the emperor of all emperor, the king of all kings, the Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. And so the message of Revelation 13 is for the church to wake up. If you look in the middle of the text, it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, let him listen. And Revelation 13 is calling us to pay attention, to read the news, to watch the news, to look at what's happening in current events with the eyes of Revelation 13 and, and be discerning and see, is this smell like the dragon who's actually manipulating religious and political communities to bring destruction and division? Revelation 13 calls us not only to wake up, but to watch. Again, the only hope for Canada for America, for the world is Jesus. And whenever we hear people talking about parties or people as, you know, if they don't get elected or this doesn't happen, we're hoop. We have no hope. You know, those are all things, that's all language of the dragon. Again, we should hope that our leaders want to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's what we hope for. That's what we pray for. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know that our allegiance does not lie with a person or a party. And lastly, Revelation 13 tells us that it's actually all about worship. That the dragon is, is using the, these beasts to draw our worship away from the Lamb. And we can spend our time trying to figure out, you know, who's the Antichrist right now? You know, who's, uh, who's working against God right now? And, uh, and there's a lot of energy that gets spilt on that thing. And I think it's honestly a waste of time. Uh, because the call of the church in Revelation is to worship the Lamb. Uh, and I'm reminded of, uh, you know, the people that are trained to look at counterfeit bills and to identify them. Uh, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what that job is, but the counterfeit bill people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I understand that when they train people to recognize what is counterfeit, they don't spend time trying to look at what is counterfeit. They just spend time exposing people to what is authentic, what is real. And as they get really familiar with looking at actual, legitimate, authentic cash, they are able to identify counterfeit bills and money very quickly because they know what is authentic. And I think that ought to be the posture of the church. Instead of going around trying to figure out who's the beast, where's the dragon, um, we are actually called to worship, to worship the lamb, and we become like what we worship. That's why worship is so important. We are made to be in the image of God. And when we worship the image of God through Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And as we worship Jesus, we can readily identify what's happening in our world that is counterfeit. That's trying to mimic God. That's trying to require worship. And we can identify that, that that's not divine. That's a human thing. That's a 666 thing. 666 thing. That's not a 777 thing. It's less than divine. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me. And as we head into this uh, last song together, um, in my devotions this week, I was in the I was in Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-one, and this is what it says. And I sent this to Drew this week. I said, uh, "We're talking about the song." I said, "The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by there." And I gave him a fill in the blank. See if he knew his Bible. 
And I want you to do the same thing right now. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their what? What comes to your mind? Crucible, furnace, don't look it up. Don't look it up, don't cheat. You know, my mind went to when I read it, if I were to fill in the blank, I would have said, you know, if, I'm, if the metaphor is crucible and furnace, it's like trials, it's suffering, it's hardship that we're refined, that we're tested. But that's not what it says. In, in Proverbs 27, it says, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. See, we are tested and refined when we choose a posture of praise no matter what season we're in, whether we're in season or out of season, whether what's going on in our life is great or hard, whether the empire is requiring worship or not, whether we're in favor of who's ever in charge politically or not, or we're waiting for the next election to happen, it doesn't change our posture. We are refined in the crucible and the furnace of praise because the one who is on the throne is still on the throne and that hasn't changed. And so our response doesn't change, that the people of God are people of worship, people of praise. We praise God in season, out of season, and that is what shapes the church. That is what, what allows us to follow the way of the lamb, not the way of the dragon. And so, Father, we thank you that you've created us for worship. We choose again in this moment to worship you and to give you praise. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would be discerning and that we could see how the enemy distracts us through religious and political forms. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't spend our energy on that, that our energy would be given to being people of worship, setting our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so Lord, again, we choose to do that this morning in response to this apocalypse that you gave us. We choose to set our eyes on you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for coming. Uh, I've gone overtime as I'm, I usually do through the series. Uh, thank you for uh, enduring and going through with me. But I pray uh, that as we go through this, and this is my heart all along, that um, our fascination with Jesus would increase, our commitment to Jesus would increase, that we would want to give him our worship and our allegiance and we would be willing to do that even uh, when it gets uncomfortable. Uh, this was the reason that uh, John gave revelation to his church in Revelation 13 was meant to encourage them to keep their eyes on the Lamb, to keep their worship with the Lamb. And so uh, as you go, I pray that you would just be infatuated with Jesus, that you would live a life of worship for him. Uh, we have prayer teams available at the front if anybody would like to receive prayer uh, for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next week.